Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations on Predators in Business, Community, and Culture, a podcast exploring the real-life stories of predatory patterns in our everyday lives, with episodes ranging from well-meaning white people to CPTSD and high achievers' anxiety in a world that has a fetish for peak performance. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to breaking codes of silence, shame, and secrecy in our own families, communities, companies, and cultures, but mostly within our own bodies. This podcast, by its very nature, is one big-ass trigger warning. I want to welcome today's guest to the podcast. His name is Alan Vandiver. He is a contemporary artist and activist based out of Chicago, Illinois. He is a father, husband, and a son. Family and friends are very important to him, and he lives his life with the goal of making every year worthy of a good movie or a good book. He takes risks, embraces adventure, and lives life to the fullest. And as a result, he has many wonderful stories. You can follow him with the link to his social media in the show notes. I want to welcome Alan to the podcast. Thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited about the conversation today. Yeah, me too. Um, to fill in our guests, uh, Alan and I met last year when I was um, around the beginning of December and um, of November when I was reaching out for a nonprofit that would want to collaborate on a show that I was putting together, a one-woman show. And I really wanted a, a nonprofit organization that uh, dealt with early adverse childhood um, trauma in some way. And I reached out in this awesome local organization and I heard Alan on the other side of the phone and um, the organization that he uh, co-founded is called Childhood Fractured. And um, I'd let you kind of share a little bit about that. And um, I asked you specifically to be here on the podcast because of uh, your unique story and why you started um, your organization and just the nature of just your your um, thriving, joyful spirit in the midst of a lot of early trauma that a lot of people might have um, been crushed by. Yeah. Um, so to start off with um, the, the topic about predators and how predators affect you um, really got me thinking. And I realized that I have come to a point where I don't really have predators in my circle anymore. I've, I've kind of figured out a way to avoid them or not necessarily avoid them, but deflect them. And I'm really excited about talking about my journey, how I got there. So that's where my mindset is for this conversation today. Um, well, tell us your background. Tell us. Your yeah. Background. So um, I'm an artist, uh, activist, um, Art is really engulfs my entire life. Um, so everything I do, I think of it as an artistic pra practice. Uh, the activism, even with that, and I've incorporated that into my art also. And my art is my activism and my activism is my art performance or images that I produce. It really all is one thing for me. It's really hard to separate the two. And that's a part uh, of what the foundation is based on, right? Is helping adults so, yeah. writing and performance. Is that right? 
Yeah, so the not-for-profit is working on prevention and awareness of child sexual abuse through contemporary art and other art, like writing and fashion and just all the arts. Very cool. And then, yeah, we've kind of expanded a little bit now into, um, along with working to prevent and awareness of child sexual abuse, but also all sexual abuse. Um, in the past, I was more broad, but I've, 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 we we had a narrow focus for a while. Now we've broadened the focus out again. Sure. Yeah. Like as your organization grows. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of the things that was most attractive about our, our connection last year was I was just barely starting to identify as an artist and as, um, as someone who comes from a, a teacher kind of background, my identity was where really encapsulated and kind of breaking out into realizing, oh, I am a writer. Oh, I am. A, I move my body. I dance. I, but I never identified as that. And so I really appreciate um, the space that you've created for survivors of, of early childhood abuse to, to learn to express and heal these kind of trapped parts of ourselves through writing, through fashion. When I visited your, your cafe, you had all this like paint on clothes and like you had done all the art that I was looking around the room and it was just very inspiring because again, it's not something I'd ever identified with, but I realized art has always been used throughout time to speak out about the injustices around us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not new. You know, this is very, very old. So (laughs) thank you for your work. Thank you. Um, So get into um, my trauma past, I guess. So I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. Um, One of the things that the project we did last year that I felt so important was having the emphasis on that men are sexually abused. And it's not always men as the predators. Um, Most of my abuse happened from women. I was sexually abused by two separate families or groups of people. Um, one, a family that was a neighbor, the initial sexual abuse all came from the women in the family. And then the the father of the family also, um, abused me later on. And then the other abuse I went through was a family member of mine, um, a female, um, family member. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do, it's interesting. I, I, I normally talk a lot more about that when I have these podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm not going to go into all the detail today with that. Well, um, I want listeners just to hear that, you know, you can follow Alan, he's done writing, he's done other interviews, and you can hear about his own personal story. And we're not going to necessarily use this platform to go into the details of his story. But I do want to pause for a moment on what he just said. Um, <clears throat> women are abusing men too. Not all men are predators. And last year, when we did this collaboration, I had hosted a men's panel of survivors of sexual abuse and not all of them had been abused by women some had abused by by men too but the stats if you want to speak to that the stats of men being sexually abused are are, are very high in number very close to women's stats we don't look at this as as a culture and so I want to speak to the predatory pattern of that that men aren't getting acknowledged for the early childhood abuse that they go through. It's almost like it's passed off into the general role of being a stud as if it should exactly, be yeah. <laughs> a, a, a benefit to his sexuality, yeah. but no, it's violation. Yeah. And it's, I think recently we that's changing. I think that um, society is realizing that um, a, a child that is sexually abused by a teacher or a, a family member or a neighbor, isn't them 
learning about sex. It's them being abused. And there's definitely been a cultural shift in like the last 20 years with that, which is, yeah, should have happened a long time ago, but yeah, it's happening. Yeah. 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 Um, and by far, when I speak out loud, something like predators and culture, people, there's so many assumptions that that automatically means men. And I just, I really want everyone to really hear that, you know, that Alan's speaking to being sexually, you know, that he had predators that were women predators in different families. And this is just really important to hear because I've come across far more men in the last 10 years that have absolutely been sexually sexualized and sexually abused by their babysitter, their sister, their mom, a neighbor, but always a woman and a little bit older. And for some reason, they're supposed to culturally accept that as if it's a good thing. And I think that unconsciously it's registered in the body. Um, very um very much like terror yeah yeah um yeah it's yeah uh (laughs) you know i i really struggle with that those feelings especially from the abuse that happened to me as a late 12 year old 13 year old um that age you know growing up and that i guess it's a good lead into what i was wanting to talk about today so i i all my experience um, of sexuality and sex um, to the age of 13 was me being sexually abused, me being, you know, so that's all I knew about sex. I didn't even know the word sex beyond, and the abusers didn't even use the word sex. So, you know, here I am, a 13-year-old, and all my experiences are these terrible events of predators preying on me and there was a real struggle during that time for me um do i become part of that pattern or do i break away from that pattern um you know i, I don't for the male viewers out there, question oh, how sure. did you know like what, what was it was it something you were told to keep a secret was it had you had an experience that was different than that to give you an indicator that there was something not right? Well, I mean, I was a victim, so that part was not right. You know, I had no choice in any of the stuff that happened. Um, I was victimized, um, you know, very traumatic experiences. I think, I guess, yes, um, the, the adults trying to keep me from talking about it the things that they did were the most traumatic. Um, so that was always tied into it. And that the loss of control, uh, me being used as like a, almost like a puppet, you know, or, you know, not, not about me as a person, but about what they could get from me, I guess. I, yeah, I guess that's good saying it. Yeah. Uh, wielding, wielding, yeah. Or dynamics and yeah. kind of being pulled in the middle. Yeah. And as a, I was just, just about to say there that as, um, and I, you know, from, I can only talk about from a male perspective, um, as a 12 year old, 13 year old, when you hit male puberty, your sex hormones just go crazy. <laughs> you know, it's almost all you think about, especially having all that sexual trauma. I thought about more than even probably the average child that didn't have that but unfortunately like you were talking about earlier a lot of us went through them you know even maybe a majority of us went through it um that being said 
there was a real struggle for me um, to know that across the street was a house full of people that I could go to and have that sexual release that I was craving, I guess, in some way. Um, I mean, I don't I, know. I'll just be honest. I was craving it. You know, I was, you know, it was something that my body was desiring and it was right there across the street. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about one incident in particular. I had a friend spend the night and he had also been sexually abused by the same neighbors, which I found out almost the entire neighborhood um, and even beyond my neighborhood were sexually abused by these people. They were um, serial abusers, I guess. I mean, they probably, I, I know of over 20 people they abused. And so I'm assuming it's in the hundreds. Um, but that's a whole nother podcast. Yes. <laughs> and we am willing to talk about that in the future too, if you want to do that. Um, but I want to stay focused on this today. Uh, so it was a real struggle to not cross that street. Um, and then this that night that that friend spent the night we talked about it all night long and we decided that morning that we were going to go across the street and invite mary the one that was closest to our age or she was our age um to come back to our place and we're planning on um having a sexual experience with her which he had been doing and knew that could happen and i was kind of excited about it but scared about it and we walked literally watched the door and knocked on the door and all i remember is the door opening and I bolted, I ran. Um, the horrors that happened to me in that house just all came flooding back and that I'd been pushing away. And I think that was the beginning of me not becoming a predator. That was the beginning of it. There was a lot more to come. It was a lot more struggle of, at the same time I was being groomed um, by a female family member um, I'll, I mean, I'll just say it. I've said it before. My, my grandmother, um, for, there's a lot of shame in that for me because your grandmother is supposed to be your maternal, you know, caretaker. And my other grandmother was wonderful. So, and that what you want them to be. And the other grandma was that until she started abusing me, which is, that's a whole nother, I mean, I don't want that to be, you know, too long of a conversation to have. Uh, so at the same time, I'm still being groomed and having an, older woman trying to get me to have sexual relationships with them, um, forcing me to take them out on dates, um, giving me money, um, the keys to their car and having me like training me how to take them on dates and how to treat a woman. And, but I resisted. Um, and I mean, the, you know, when I say I resist, I like really had to resist. It was, naked body in front of me even to the point of the masturbating in front of me um and but me somehow having the strength to not fall into that trap uh i still you know i, I think about it a lot but I, I still haven't quite figured out exactly how i kept myself from falling into that trap and how i removed myself from it um i do remember the struggle a lot and, you know, it's a little embarrassing to say that, you know, it was a struggle. Um, you know, there's someone right there in front of you. Um, access. Like, yeah. Like, like, money. Yeah. Yeah. Training. Yeah. You yeah. Like, yeah. In the shape and the frame of that yeah. is so coercive. Yeah. And yet it's it was, framed as if it's in your yeah. benefit for the future. 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I talk about grandma, you think of an old lady. She was in her 40s. So she wasn't that old. Um, she was a very attractive woman. So there was also that. So it was... Grandmother you know, that was in her yeah. 40s. Yes. Let's listen yeah. to that for a second. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. And you're yeah. being groomed. And so right now, again, the lines of what love and abuse is commingled and yeah. like how did you have that strength to resist when it's yeah. so already enmeshed from early yeah. on yeah and uh, i will tell a little more detail about it to, to even really get the um, listeners okay. to really understand um the first thing that she did was over a weekend and by the end of that weekend she you know it's it's hard for a male to say this and it's hard for people to understand how this happens, but she raped me. Um, reading me a story in bed, um, started touching me in my lower region and your body reacts, becomes aroused and literally jumping on top of me. And I had no desire for it to happen. No, like, you know, it was just, it was traumatic. It was, I blacked out. I barely remember after her. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't need to go into detail. I, I don't really remember it. You know, it, my my brain still like pushes that thought away. Even what I do remember, it still pushes away. Um, so one story, and then that. I mean, of course, yeah. that's rape. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was a hundred percent rape. Wow. But it took me a long time to even understand that that was rape. Absolutely. You know? Um, especially as in culture, you know, yeah, overlarging culture, culture that yeah. has definitions that that doesn't fit hearing those stories about teachers and the the young stud who got lucky and, you know, just, yeah, it was songs, yeah, and, culture. The, the songs and culture, the movies, the TV shows. Um, but I knew it was wrong. And I, I mean, I don't know where that came from, but I just knew that this was not how it should be. And, you know, I, I hate to say, but it, it's probably a good thing that that happened first in the grooming process because then she started grooming me. And then I resisted because that was a terrible experience. But if, you know, it would have, I mean, but whatever, you know, that's me trying to process and figure everything out. But um, so at that point in my life, I decided I didn't want to be a victim anymore. And um, in my bio, my longer bio, I talk about how I was actually physically handicapped as a child too. Um, my feet were, um, they, Basically, it was an extreme um, form of pigeon toed. Um, they literally had to cut my feet off in like the front half of my feet. They had to cut the front half of my feet off and reattach them to straighten them out. Because um, I literally, they were just bent wrong. And I would trip over them and walk funny. And so I was also bullied a lot. And, you know, I had a speech impediment. Um, so up until the age of 12, and that's when... Um, the abuse with with her started. Um, I was victimized in so many ways, and I decided going into my thirteenth thirteenth year of life that I didn't want to be victimized anymore. Um, and I will be honest. Um, I went to the other extreme, and I, for less than a year, um, I became a bully. Um, I was like, "This is not going to happen to me." I so I started acting out the the actions that were being done to me finding the weakest child in the room and picking on them um saying terrible things um but i mean i was i was thinking about this last night it, it probably wasn't more than 3 to 4 months that i went through that stage and realized how terrible it was and i think that was also even though it had nothing to do with like being a sexual predator 
but that also being a predator on that level, being the bully, um, made me realize how awful that was. And because I had been bullied so much, it was like, oh, I saw myself doing to others what had been done to me. And I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. So I stopped. Um, and honestly, that's probably that three to six month period of time in my life is probably my biggest regret in life of how I behaved. <laughs> it was that time period. Um, and then my focus went on to, well, I, I'm tall, I'm big. And during that age, I, from 13 to 15, I grew to being six, three and realized that now that I'm bigger, um, less people are preying on me. And so then I took that to the extreme and I started lifting weights and working out every day. And I realized the stronger, the bigger I got, the less and less I got victimized and the predators that were there didn't prey on me. And I saw them still preying on others, but because, you know, by the end of that transformation, by the time I was to, to college and I was 6'3", 245 pounds, could bench press 380 pounds, um, you know, held the school record for leg press. Like I was like 1,285 pounds or something like that. Like I was like massively muscular and strong. And so no one picked on me. No one, you know, no one, and I was treated different. And um, I, I do want to get back into that the whole white privilege of being, especially being a, a large, strong white male. Because mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of white males that do get picked on and, and abused their entire life because they're smaller and society perceives that as being weaker or their demeanor is less. I don't know. Yeah, but I, we'll, I want to get into that later. Not yet. Um, I, I was still using, um, you know, I was still up to my college year, I had a lot of um, trauma, you know, bottled up inside. So I was using alcohol and drugs. Um, and I started drinking at 13. Also that time I wanted to stop being a victim. I wanted to stop remember being a victim. So along with doing things to stop me from being a victim, I also used that physical exertion and the physical violence of sports to deal with that trauma in a negative way to some extent, some, some positive, some negative. Um, but then also alcohol, especially um, no. you know, by, by the time I was in college, I was drinking a 12 pack a day um, plus um, and working out for at least three to four hours a day. Um, so basically working myself to exhaustion, drinking myself to but not have you know, to pass feel out. And that's, that was my life. Um, and I got a spinal injury playing college football and I couldn't drink. Um, I couldn't work out. So all my coping mechanisms were gone. Um, and I got into counseling. Luckily I had a drinking violation right before my spinal injury, like literally the week before my spinal injury, I got a drinking violation as a freshman in college and I had to go to classes for that. And those two things being combined Luckily, having the counseling going on along with my other coping mechanisms being stripped away, it only took a few sessions before my counselor realized you have some severe trauma here. And her actually even being like, you need to see a more professional than myself <laughs> or herself. Um, so I actually went up the line to different counselors until I found like it was actually the head of our um, university's college department department. Um, 
like the most senior counselor. Um, and he did miracles and wonders for me. Um, I was in counseling during that time, probably two to three times a week for a number of years. Um, and support groups, um, some of the counseling was support groups, but, you know, seeing a counselor at least twice a week, um, dealing with all the tra traumatic terrors and horrors and torture that I had went through and bringing it all out, putting putting my life together again. Um, I didn't remember age eight to 10. I didn't remember it at all. Uh, probably actually six to 10. I didn't remember. I mean, I remembered little bits, but I blocked most of it out. And uh, I, I was able to put it all back together and now remember it all. Um, there's some things I've chosen to not dive into because I don't need to remember them, <laughs> the details. How but, young uh, were you when, when abuse first started? That you six. Yeah, six years old. Um, I might have even been five. Um, that that, yeah, the, the, that the, winter the, around there. Yeah. The grooming yeah. process is so tricky, especially yeah. within the family. Yeah, actually, well, this was the neighbors that first abused me, um, babysitters, um, and then baby babysitting at my house abusing me, and then, and that's that's a whole other thing too, and I will bring that up because I think it does have to do with what I was talking about earlier, and I want to get back into that a little bit more in detail. The babysitters, how the abuse first started happening was they would have me do sexual acts with their sister, who was the same age as I was. And I think a lot of times if that would have ended there, it would have been, I would have called it playing doctor, you know, you know, I would have justified it in my brain, um, but it was still would have been sexual abuse and trauma. And the, the, the really going back to that, those teen years, I remember even today, but I remembered then everything I blocked out. The one thing I did remember was all of the sexual experiences. Her name was Mary, her and I had. So I, still have memories of having sex with a six-year-old. I was a six-year-old, but I remember that. And that is a memory that if I could erase something from my brain, that's what I would erase, <laughs> you know? And I mean, with all the other, the being raped, I mean, I was, the father raped me in a pain, it was horrific. I'd rather remember that than, you know, having that memory as a teenager. I mean, now I, you know, but that whole teenager, you know, I, I I am amazed. I'm amazed that I did not become a sexual predator. I'm amazed that I did not become a child sexual abuser when I think about my teen years. Um, and, you know, that's been a long time for me to, I, I would admit it, but to be able to talk about it like we're talking about it right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it still brings up a lot of, uh, like, it's fear of like, oh my God, I'm saying this out loud. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. And it's so important, you know, to take a breath and be like, I notice you doing this with yourself and you'll be like, Oh, I can, Oh, I can say the name. And you just say it because it's like, yeah. wow, the, the body memory of the terror to not to keep the secret is far more strong yeah. than the new remembrance of our present day reality that says, Oh no, I've built safety. I can do this. And yeah. real time with us, you're, you're showing us that yeah. what it means to, to grow. Yeah from the headspace you were in as a 13 year old realizing that you were abused to as an adult yeah. after you've gotten therapy and, and gotten some, some adult support. Yeah. And I feel like it's important to talk about this too, because a lot of us will talk about that we're victims and now survivors and now more than survivors um, thriving. Um, you know, we talk about being a victim and what that was like and, you know, but I think it's more important. No, not more. Maybe I think maybe it's a little, 
now it's a little more important for us to start talking about how we process that and became healthy beings and not falling into that trap. And I can I'm just re- repeating the pattern of just repeating, repeating where you come well, from. Like, how did you disrupt that? I yeah. agree with you. And that's when, you know, I, I, my, my goal in life, I didn't really, I mean, I talked about it a little bit, my goal, my, my number one goal in life is to end child sexual abuse. Now I can't do that on my own. And I don't realistically think I'm going to achieve that by my death, but I'm going to work towards it. Yes. Because someone needs to start working towards it. I know there's others out there, but we need to work towards ending it, not dealing with the symptoms of it. Yes. Because if no one works to ending it, it'll never end. And we'll just keep on working on the symptoms of it. And that's, yeah, for me, it's like, okay, we need to end this. <laughs> and there's no easy answer for it either. Um, but I think one of the steps we need to do is talk about how, as survivors, we did not fall into the pattern of becoming predators and abusers. Well, you're illuminating that really well for us. Like you're, you're showing how, like, wow, how you, what the coping strategies that you were using that are normal, work out a yeah. lot, get really busy with work, drink too much. These things yeah. are kind of socially and culturally acceptable, and yet they're still coping strategies. And so yeah. then you end up in therapy because of the accident. Yeah. And this begins to transform how you're relating to yourself. Yeah. yeah. And then one of the coping me- mechanisms I did was art before this. I would draw, I would sketch. Um, in all my art classes, I was always, um, you know, exceeding everyone else. And, um, you know, because I it was a way of me coping with it. But I never really thought of it more than that. And then with the spinal injury, along with going to counseling, basically, all I could do is watch TV and draw. So I just really fell into art as my new coping mechanism, I guess, at first, but a super healthy one. Um, and then I was a chemistry major before my injury, switched to psychology major for a while because it helped me, all the classes helped me process what was going on in my counseling. And then, I mean, that's why a lot of survivors become counselors because it does help us. And that did help. I do have my minor in psychology because of that, but I really realized my passion was art and that art was the thing that allowed me to process and put all the memories together. Um, my first real breakthrough in counseling was doing paintings of what I did remember from my abuse. And that allowed me to remember more, to put the pieces together, to figure out there was an incident um, in my abuse where the father of my neighbors um, hit his daughter with a baseball bat and she fell on the ground and cracked her head open and she was unconscious and bleeding. And he took my left hand and I was left-handed at this time and put my hand in her blood and said that this was, the blood was on my hands and this was my fault that this happened and don't ever tell anyone about this or I will do this to your family. In my mind at that point, talking about childhood fractured, my mind fractured and I thought this child was dead and I thought that I was responsible for killing this child and that, I mean, along with everything else, I mean, that was another one, one of the big moments in there that really messed me up. Uh, and then through counseling, I realized that, oh, no, she wasn't dead. They never had a child missing um, and figuring out exactly, okay, this was one of the older daughters who babysat me that was the one grooming me. She got caught grooming me. This was her punishment. This was his way of keeping me from telling others. Um, and, you know. But art is painting those images is what me got me too. It's like, oh, 
oh, wow, this is, I put everything together now. Like I, I had like 14 paintings done and I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm time, you know, I'm like, okay, this must have happened first and this and this. And it gave me something to have a, like a, um, be able to see the time that it happened. And yeah, it, it just, and then I just continued to use art for that purpose. Um, and you know, putting I, these, fr- these fragmented parts of yourself, which is such an yeah. a trauma informed process. Like that's what we do to heal is we remember these fragmented yeah. parts that literally got fractured at a time like that. And we don't remember it anymore. Yeah. So, so the art beautiful. helped me heal that, that fracture. Um, so for me in my brain, the healing of that fracture, I, I see it as like a broken part of myself that I went in and painted and made it into a beautiful thing. And the scar is still there, but I beautified it with my art. And that's a big part of what we do with childhood fractured is um, I have a series where I take broken toys and um, discarded toys and I reimagine them into new creatures. I call them creatures. I bring them back to life. And, but I leave the scars, you know, I don't make it so you don't notice that it was two different things or five different things put back together to make a new thing. I leave the broken parts of it. I make it beautiful at the same time. And it's interesting because some people think they're terribly scary and other people think they're beautiful. And and it's because I feel like the people that think they're beautiful are the people that have done a lot of healing in their life. And they're like, they can relate. And the people that think that they're terrible and scary, it just reminds them of their brokenness. And, you know, yeah. So, wow. um, Yeah. So art has been a huge part of that. But also whole your therapy. Process. I want to say it was in therapy that let you get new oh, yeah. perspective yeah. on how your art was supporting you to kind of recapture these ages that had been lost and left behind. Yes. Yeah. So after that first series of paintings, I got heavily involved with the counseling department and they had retreats every winter for um, to learn how to become a peer helper. Um, learning how to help your peers. And they dealt with all the different type of traumatic experiences that we go through and how we can help ourselves and become healthy so that we can help others that um, have gone through these traumas. And that was a life-changing experience for me. And because of that, I started what's called VARA, Violence Acquaintance Rape Awareness Week at my university, which is still going on 30 years later, um, which is one of my... One of my stars in my life. Um, What's it called again? Vara V uh, or Violence Acquaintance Rape Awareness Week, Um, and they do it every I think uh, October at the university. Awesome. You know, and at that time, child sexual abuse was still super taboo in the '90s to talk about. So, um, you know, talking about acquaintance rape. And that type of stuff was a lot, it was more becoming a social, um, socially acceptable to talk about. So I focused on that, but I also brought in the whole child stuff into the whole messaging and, and um, programs that we provided. Um, but I, yeah. Um, and then I started with the, the peer helping program that I was in. I started doing, working with, it was called Teen Institute, which was doing it for teenagers, for high school kids. So I got heavily involved in that. So I, part of my coping mechanism and healing was becoming an activist. 
and those things. Um, and then I kind of actually went activist overboard. <laughs> I also worked for like Greenpeace and um, different um, environmental organizations, political movements, anti-war movements. I was just all over. I was doing it all, you know, and that was, it was great. Um, and I continued to do that through my adult life until 12 years ago, where I was like, okay, I feel like I'm not really making one a huge impact in any of these one things. So I'm going to focus on the one thing that affected me the most that I know the most about. And since then I've been focused on, which is now childhood fractured. Mm. Um, so again, I'm going to go back a little bit <laughs> so I don't get off track because I, I could go on about that. Um, so I started during that time, you know, I still had professors and teachers and adults in my life and, and especially um, employers and in the workplace, people that were predators still and still, you know, and, you know, I guess getting out of varsity sports also was a huge thing and realizing how the coaches treated us was awful, you know, and how the senior um, students mimicked the, the the sports people mimicked those coaches and treated us awful with the whole hazing and all that. Um, and I started becoming a bit of a whistleblower. Um, I actually ended a huge hazing um, initiation that the sports did that I went through by going to the counselors and talking to them about this and being like, hey, something needs to be done about this. This is traumatizing these people, preying on them, um, and was able to end that practice because it was like part of the unit. I mean, it was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, the, the university supported it until then. Exactly. And it's the forms yeah. of institutional abuse where yeah. they know these departments are running certain things in certain ways, but because it's the quote culture or it's the tradition or whatever, but it's steeped in predatory abuse. Yeah. 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 And that's what exactly what their defense was. Well, this is tradition and it makes you stronger. And it's like, well, not really. This okay, is no gain. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, you know, a little pain that's not not emotional pain, but, you know, the whole physical thing working through it, that's good. But then they take it too far by saying, OK, well, now we got to really push you in these emotional ways, too. And it's like, well, maybe not. <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, and I think there's changes in that that have continued through society. But that allowed me to really separate myself from predators um, that were in my adult life, along with becoming a bigger, strong um, individual and then removing my having to be removed from that because of injury and then being, ah, oh, I like this. So then removing myself more and more. And, you know, I haven't had a, a job job. I haven't had a boss in 23 years. I've managed to, that was my reason of leaving the working force was because employers, bosses built into the system, they're predators. They prey on you. There's no consent given, you know, it's you do this or else, you know, and it's your livelihood. And it's like, okay, well, I need to eat. I need shelter. I'm going to be abused. And so I ended that cycle for myself too. Um, and I really like, I was trying to think of like what predators are in my life now. And I honestly couldn't think of any. Um, I have a few family members, one, I won't call them out, but <laughs> that does sometimes fall into those things, but I just ignore it now. I just kind of like brush it off and I've learned how to, and that, that does happen with other predator type people. They will try to flex on me and 
beat their chest. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, you be you, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go back over this way, <laughs> you know, or some not even the- letting them stop me, but like walk past them instead, I guess, maybe. What are some of the uh, signs that you notice? <sighs> well, um, this is something I have on my list. I wanted to talk about not that, that kind of falls into that. Um, so I run support groups and for child sexual, well, for survivors of child sexual abuse and online support groups. Um, well, pre-COVID in person, I didn't really like doing the online because I felt like you needed to be there. Someone had a breakdown. I didn't want to have someone have a breakdown while they were, you know, remote and alone. Um, so I didn't really do that. Um, but in the, in person, and we actually kept a group, a small group of survivors that were coming in. We created a small, um, small safe group that, you know, were quarantining, but with each other during then. And so we did continue that, but prior to that, we had a lot of predators trying to come into the group and I had to be really vigilant on weeding them out and not just saying, you know, like kicking them out saying, you know, like being, being mean to them. I had to be like, okay, that behavior is not acceptable here. And I had like a three-step thing. You know, I would be like, if you're going to be here, you know, you can't be inappropriate in these ways. And I had like a whole form they had to fill out or to, to sort of sign uh, but, you know, I just kept on getting more and more to the point now where I, I do um, the consent groups and the sex positivity groups because I find that those don't attract the predators. I think the predators see, oh, so abuse survivors, easy prey. I'm going to come to these groups and prey on them, um, which is terrible. Um, but that's, that's really so interesting. So really, if you're doing a support group for, say, s- survivors of sexual abuse, yeah. it'll be, be a magnet where it'll also attract this kind it, of predatory. I don't want to make it sound like there were tons of them, but there were enough to make it an issue. And um, there's like um, behavioral patterns that you notice when somebody say in your circle and oh, yeah. communication patterns? Is it um, body, pa- uh, like physical patterns? Pretty what much everything you just said. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, I think it might be helpful uh, to hear uh, for the Yeah. Um, you know, them... Well, there's one person in particular was like a really easy to spot. He would always pick the youngest person in the group and try to sit next to them and try to touch them and try to ask them what their sexual preferences were and, and talk about sex with them which was inappropriate for the you know the group itself um i mean we were trying to talk about how to heal through becoming a more healthy sexual person and how to so we were talking about that but it was pretty obvious what this person was trying to do and you know there was also the guys that would come and <laughs> shoot i said guys but it, it was unfortunately it was almost all Uh, And and I think it's an important distinction because I I just want to pause on this and please hold your place because I want you to pick up where you are. But I do want to pause because you're bringing up something really important to point out that um, whether it's a healing support group that you're creating a safe atmosphere in in your in your space or some of the places I've been have been like, say, uh, tantra workshops where mm-hmm. you're going for intentional sexual conscious sexuality or yeah. other types of say yoga and connection type spaces and yeah. what will happen is and and alan's referring to these people as predators because he's so well versed in the um dis in the 
uh, discernment of an, a frequency of a person, right? Because one doesn't go through the types of experiences that he's gone through without growing a level of superpower discernment. And this yeah. is kind of silver lining of really horrible trauma. The more you learn and you take do therapy and, and you study on this stuff, there are silver linings as we heal. And a part yeah. of it is this kind of superpower awareness around patterns of, of way people operate and yeah. so it seems like, oh, that's not a big deal, but that's a part of predatory patterns is yeah. culture uses everyday normality of things and predatory type people will gravitate to places where they can do certain types of behavior and be easily undetected. Yeah. And so these places that kind of operate from heart-centered, open, support group spaces can automatically draw what Alan's speaking to here. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you, you brought up the, the tantric and all that, because I've definitely experienced that there too. And different, um, you know, in the in the kink world um yes. different spaces where they're and it's um i'm actually pretty um active in the chicago kink world because of being um one of the things i do is i i go to events i get in the past i got hired to go to events and be there as not a counselor because i'm not a counselor but to be there if someone had a flashback or a moment you know that a trigger, a trigger happened and they would come and talk to me and I would help. It's like if a grounding you, place. Grounding place. So I would do that role in different um, events and retreats. Um, and in the last couple of years, uh, the Chicago area King scene has called out so many predators and it's, you know, they, they removed them from, and again, they were just removing them from the community, but now they've like reached, actually reached out and been like, let's get you into counseling. Let's help these people, which is great because otherwise they're just going to get pushed more into the fringes and do terrible, terrible things. And not uh, understand what they do sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And it can make it worse. Yeah. Yes. yeah. By kicking them out can make them worse. So by getting them, trying to get them help. And then also this last year, there's just been this whole consent which we started two years ago, but this whole consent revolution is starting to happen. And, uh, you know, I think last year we were probably the only, um, there's a, a, a website called FetLife um, and they have kink events there. And I, I have my survivors group posted there and the consent group posted there um, because I feel like people that are in that community need to learn these skills. And now all the different organizations that are involved with that and all the different locations are teaching those classes also. And have come to us and, you know, worked with us on how they can develop their programs. So that's a huge, another one of those stars on my chart. <laughs> and <laughs> I know. also, I want to point out how brilliant you're noticing on that is of, of doing a circle where you start to kind of put the four, four, forerunner as consent, right? Consent and sex positivity. Um that you can bring in, right, our history of abuse to that conversation, but you're not forefronting the conversation as uh, survivors of abuse and how the type of person you're attracting changed. And I find that so interesting that you're yeah. saying predators are automatically going to not be gravitated towards circles where consent is the highest and, and yeah. transparency is up for what, what I do see with it is I see people that had the potential of being predators and maybe even have been predators coming to these groups, but wanting to not be that anymore. Mm. Mm. um which has been amazing um it's you know it's it's a i i 
I wish I had more resources and more time um, because, you know, what I really need to do is I need to have separate, I need to, you know, have this one group once a week. I need to have two groups and like kind of, okay, so the people that have predator type history or patterns and are trying to remove it, remove them and have them in a separate group that I run where then the people that are coming there that have been victims, you know, if I, I had a red one, you know, yeah. That needs a separate closed container so that things can get said that aren't, quote, normally okay yeah. to be said in the place of other people. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the only way we untangle predatory patterns that we grew yeah. up around and that we somehow have learned or is okay, even though some part of us knows it's not okay. I grew yeah. up around so many predatory patterns. Sometimes you don't know the things you do are predatory. Well, and I, I, I'm a strong believer and um in in and even developing more and more of a program where I feel like we can end child sexual abuse. And the fourth step of this pattern that I'm creating is helping the abusers, getting the abusers help. The abusers are victims that more than likely were traumatized more than the non um abusers, um, because they couldn't get out of that pattern. You know, they, they went through, you know, I had these moments of terrible things throughout my life, but they probably went from age one to 19 or 18, leaving the house, going through those terrible things. And it's, you know, they, they, they're the ones that really need the help, you know, to end it. Cause that's, you know, you get them help, then they stop being predators. They stop being abusers. And then the cycle ends, but the way our society is set up right now, and even within counseling and legal systems, it's almost impossible to do it. You know, if a person comes to counseling and says, I'm an abuser and I want to stop being an abuser, and the counselor mandatorily has to report them to the police about anything that they talk about that they've abused, and then they go to jail. There's and they no don't way get to heal. Right? There's no, no reconciliation in that. And it makes it worse. <laughs> it's just, it surely uh, does. And it, yeah. it, just, it reminds me of the amount uh, of people that don't report their own early childhood abuse because we just, it's better to just kind of like rebuild our life, you know, like, let's just move yeah. on, you know, yeah. that I, but it's because of culture that isn't supportive to actually do something with these horrible things because the yeah. people who did it to us are in positions of power or, or yeah. authority. And it's actually kept a secret yeah. as a part of quote culture. Well, and I would like to expand on that. Yeah, um, so the people that are sexually abused as adults are not always, but a very, very ma large majority of the time we're sexually abused as children. Mm. So they're in that victim pattern, you know, and it's no fault to them. You know, they were victimized and they never got the help to not be a victim. And then as adults, the predators see victim, you know, and they, they victimize those people. You know, it's, there's a lot of studies that show that it's not really the people that dress sexy that get, they get sexually assaulted. It's the people that wear the sweatpants and try to hide because the predators see that those people are past victims and won't expose their predatorness. So they prey on those people even more than the confident people that, you this know, is what studies show. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, it's, it's, and it makes sense too. You know, if you even like, I've done tons of research on, I, I, I'm a avid reader and um, documentary watcher and <laughs> researcher. Um, you know, it's predators are, that's why, unfortunately, children are victims of so much sexual pred predators is 
They are people that don't have the skills to report it. They don't have the ability to report it. They have the adults have the ability to manipulate them more. And it conditions a lot of those victims as adults to stay in that pattern. And these predators see that. And the more so of the adults that I, I know a woman who's like, um, I have been, she said, I've been raped so many times and I know I will be raped many more times in my life. And it's because she is stuck in that victim mentality and people see it and she doesn't think she's strong enough to pull herself out of it. So she's just like given up to it. She's like, I just, it's just going to happen. I'm going to get raped. And it's like, you know, it's, you know, and that's, that goes on to, you know, I'm just going to briefly, since I said that, I want to briefly, um, as working with survivors so much, there is a, a subcategory of survivors that have been victimized so much that they will never be able to overcome the victimization. Um, and that's like one of the biggest heart problems. I, I literally had to kick someone out of the space yesterday who's been banned from the space. Um, and the only reason they are banned from the space is because they, um, I, I'm going to go in, I'm going to tell the story. Um, so they were coming into the space to get help um, and to, you know, find a community. And, you know, in the beginning it was going good. And one day they came in and, you know, some things transpired and they were like, they, it was just the two of us in, in the space at that time. There's usually more people, but it was just me in there when she came in. And I think that made her act different. She's like, I know you want to rape me. <laughs> and she's like, let's just get it over with. Just take me in the basement and rape me right now. And I'm like, absolutely not. You know, it's like, I don't know where you got that, you know, idea. And I know that's from, you know, like your history, but I do not want to do that. I do not, you're as like, you know, and I said it in a nicer way, but basically, you know, she was too victimized to be a sexual partner, a healthy sexual partner, because she would have wanted, you know, if he were to, if someone was to have a sexual relationship with this person, it would have been them as being a victim because they were so stuck in that pattern. So even if, you know, it was like consensual, you know, like, like, I don't know, romantic, I don't know if it would have like, there's no way it could have even happened even like in a romantic way, you know, obviously. Um, but um, yeah, it's just, it's so sad, you know, and she came in the other day and she's like, you know, can you please let me back in and, you know, can I come, come again and to the, to the groups and stuff. And I'm like, are you in counseling? You know, or are you, doing these other things I said you have to do before. And she's like, no. And I'm like, well, you got to go do these things because we're not, you know, you know, it's like there's certain levels of trauma that I don't even know if, you know, professionals, you know, like the best professional can even, you know, work through with people, which is sad to say, but it's, I think it's unfortunately. It is really true. And it also speaks to um, a very challenging aspect to the realm of healing that some of us might have so much compacted historical trauma in our body that we might not get through it and that there's just no shame in that you know wherever stage any of us find ourselves what I also want to highlight is your healthy boundaries to say absolutely not like you can see what's going on for her she might not see what she's doing yet you're just setting a boundary that says no, yeah. you know, and if you do counseling and you do this and you do this, and that's such a powerful thing because we can recognize people might be victims of abuse yeah. and it might be so much. They may not ever be able to ever 
transform or or metabolize some of that. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's kind of like the extreme cases when we're talking about child sexual abuse specifically. Um, you know, the extreme cases they usually become predators or this. I don't. I don't even know if there's really. I'm sure there is a name for it, but I don't know what this trauma extreme traumatized people that just won't don't that have been so broken um that yeah and and their their psychology has also been so um what happens in the brain when we have such early types of um horrific trauma and you know i i related also to cult abuse you know one can also experience sexual abuse and cult abuse and the level of coercion and and what actually happens in our brain to correct that it might not be everybody's path. They might get one. And so wherever we are, but again, listening to you, Alan, is it's such a treat because you're giving us so many angles into your process, but also what it means to support and hold space for others. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you just said that. So I'm going to get back on track to, to my process. <laughs> um, so then becoming more of an activist specifically on just this topic also stopped the few predators that were still in my life that were trying to, uh, yeah, in the, the art world, everywhere in the world, there's some predators. Um, a lot of my artwork because of the hypersexualization that happened from being sexually abused. Um, you know, a lot of my artwork deals with me processing sexual thoughts. So a lot of my work is sexual. And I, and I, I honestly, I think that sexuality and um healthy sex positive sex is like one of the most ultimate parts of being a human being Um, i agree and it's been tremendous in the healing process to reclaim that pleasure yeah we have to reclaim yeah that's part of the stolen so early yeah and i definitely had predators that would come to me about that you know that were still like before i became an activist in this and they knew i was an activist in this until i brought it into my art practice you know people thinking oh you're the erotic artist you're the kinky artist and that kind of attracted some predators thinking that i was one of them maybe or you know i don't know um so but once i took this strong stance on um my mission in life and bringing that out it was already i mean since I was 19, it was part of my mission in life. Um, but until I brought it to the forefront again, um, and that eliminated those predators. So I've just, I really went through a whole, you know, life journey of eliminating every predator in my life. And to, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, I just, I don't think there are any predators. I don't have that experience anymore. And that one, we, that's why I want I want to bring that back to that because um I acknowledge that the white privilege large male in especially in our society has given me you know I see that as a blessing for myself that I don't have to go through the predatory acts that other people have to go through and that I see you know I um, I was thinking about this and how do I say this in a way that I'm not trying to say like I'm a superhero, <laughs> um, but I actively keep an eye out for predators and stopping them if I see it. Um, if it's verbally, you know, like complete strangers, you know, like if I'm shopping and I see someone abusing or being predatory and, and even in conversation to someone, 
I'll interject myself into that. And that definitely if I see it, like, you know, you're at a, a bar or a club or just on the street and you see someone roughing someone up, you know, I've just two years ago, I literally ran across the Irving park, which is a super busy road across from my shop and tackled someone that was abusing and then, you know, held them there until the cops came in. I've done that a number of times in my life. And I, you know, I feel like we need to be that proactive. I think that if you see abuse, you see predators, you need to call them out. And even if they're in your workplace and you might get fired for it, it's, I, I think you can't, because if you get fired for it, you can sue them, you know, um, you know, document it, but it's like, um, you know, have someone turn on their cell phone as you go over to put your cell phone up on your desk and and go talk to them and, and record it or just have the, you know, the cell phone in your hand. Because if we don't call these people out on it and we don't, I think that's like the next step. And that's when the consent group, we talk about that, you know, the consent group beginning, it started mainly about consent with sexuality. Um, but now we've moved on to consent in the workplace, consent in the home life, consent at school. You know, it's like reclaiming consent takes away the power of predators um, along with confronting them. And basically they're trying to control you. And when you demand consent from them and that they give you consent or that you get consent on your actions, um, that, that takes away their power. You know, so we have to think about how do we take away the power? And, you know, like I said, abusers are the ones that need, you know, how, how, the majority of the help. Um, you know, it's, it's sad. We don't really have a system for that yet. But, you know, we need to the, the people that are doing that are broken They're It doesn't justify what they do. But I, I mean, I think we, you know, do need to empathize with them that these people are really have horrible lives you know if, if you know even if on the outside a lot of times on the outside they'll try to you know the the people who you think are the happiest if you don't really know about predatory behavior and how to spot it a lot of them are the most successful the nicest um you know not really nice but the charmers you know the charismatic very over over charismatic people um the ones that are trying just a little too hard um, they are usually covering something up. Not always, but usually. They usually are. Um, they have some ultimate motive. Um, I guess the, what is it, the snake? Um, it's not snake charmers. charmers. Yeah, snake charmer. Yeah. The, or the, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's such a complex, I'm, I'm glad you're doing these podcasts because, you know, predators are such a, you know, it's such a, a, a you know, I, it's not a rubber stamp. I think what's coming up for me, the more and more I heal, and one of the things I want to speak to about what you just said is the more we heal, the more space we actually have to detect all this stuff around yeah. us. The more compacted that stuff is in us, the less we want to have those conversations and the less we can detect it. And so therefore, when Alan speaks to this, they're holding a victim energy 
you know, I, I take a little challenge to the word because I come from a spiritual community that used the word victim in victim shaming. That word can be overused in spiritual spaces as and, and self-development spaces as a way to take responsibility and choose something else. But what we have to understand about very historical as well as, as, well as specifically childhood trauma and sexual trauma from people we're supposed to be being taken care of by. Yeah. It yeah. adds an element of betrayal trauma that's compacted and it confuses our system because yeah. when we start to understand attachment places that we should have gotten support and protection, we got violated. And so what that means is your system actually like a, like a memory code, it remembers violation as more familiar yeah. than safety. And so you keep drawing in the circumstance over and over again, because a part of you is familiar with it, your nervous system, this is all very trauma informed. So when Alan talks to this, he's talking about it in a very trauma informed way, because he's holding sessions with people. But it's not to make you feel like you should choose better because sometimes our trauma is so overwhelming. We don't have a choice to choose something else. What we do have a choice to is get ourselves in some counseling, get ourselves a therapist, find a support group, because the more you can learn what safety could feel like, you can unlearn old patterns that keep you in predatory victim relationship and learn new patterns, but it's slow. It's not easy. It's hard. It requires support. It requires therapists that are really therapists, not your yoga teacher coach that happens to know something about trauma. And not a year of therapy. You know, it's like you're saying it's a um, commit to your betterment. Like when we listen to Alan, you're, you're telling us a story of, of stages you got through where you learn to move predatory energy out of your safety zone and you rebuilt safety for yourself. And becoming a survivor is like the first step in doing that, you know, so you have to, if you, if you feel like you're in the victim state of being still, you need to work on becoming a survivor and talking about that and what you were just talking about. um, You know, I don't know if it's true, but I feel that you need to work on becoming a survivor for the almost the same period of time that you were a victim. So I was a victim for probably like 16 years. And it wasn't until I was 30 that I was a hundred percent a survivor. You know, it took an equal amount of time for me to unlearn and, and heal all of those broken things. And, and I think we should look at it that way. There is no quick fix for it. It's a lifetime journey. And I mean, I do feel like when I reached 30, that I, you know, almost all the healing that I needed to do had been done. And then it allowed me then to become a thriver. And that's been my second journey um, or my third journey on this. And now I've done that for 16 years also. So now I'm like 16 years in, and now I'm, I'm kind of feeling, okay, there needs to be another, another level, you know? Um, And that goes to talking about words, you know, words that we use to describe these things. One of the things that I've, you know, I kind of pushed against a little bit in the beginning because I didn't understand it, but the whole gender, um, the he, she, them, they, you know, they are using that to say, I want to break these social norms and I don't want to be thought of as this type of person that they envision that she, her, them, he being. Um, and that's what we need to do even in a, in a broader spectrum, you know, um, it, 
we shouldn't call it sexual abuse because the word sex should be a sacred, beautiful word. And once we call it a bad thing, then it becomes half bad, half good. But what happened to me as a child wasn't sex. It was something different. Predatory, but yeah, I mean, we even, we need to come up with, you know, more and more words for it because, you know, it's just, you know, it's like, I feel up until 10 years ago, there was victim survivor, you know, now we have thriver, um, but that still hasn't even been, you know, only in the survivor community do we know about thriving. Um, but in all communities, they know about, you know, everyone knows about victims and survivors and the, the difference between the two, you know, now we need to really, and honestly, you know, I mean, if you really want to dive deep into that, um, I don't think that our society, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there were a lot of survivors, you know, there were true survivors, you know, they were just uh, coping. victim coping. Yeah. Coping victims. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like our society wasn't willing to help address that, address that. And, you know, we so we addressed that. And then we now we have survive, a whole generation of survivors. And now those survivors have been survivors for so long and they need to become more. And that's kind of, that's where one of our first missions with Childhood Fractured is that we need survivors to become activists. Mm. Um, and I'm going to bring it back to the, the child sexual abuse uh, mission ending, um, ending child sexual abuse is we've never had a human rights movement for children. Um, children were considered property until 1946. It was legally okay for a parent or a family member to rape, hurt, maim a child. They, if your neighbor raped your child, they damaged your property. That's what they would get in trouble for, not for sexually assaulting them. Um, and you know, when you talk about churches and stuff, um, that was part of your family. Your priest was almost the head of your family, or a rabbi, or whatever, and they were allowed to use those children as. However, you know, there were objects to be used. They weren't people. So children were the last enslaved part of our population. The, and they still have not had that, like the right to say no, um, the right to their body autonomy. You know, that's like we're still, the children themselves can't do the work that needs to be done because they're children. <laughs> and then when they get to become survivors, most of them are like, I've done the work. I don't want to deal with it anymore. You know, it's terrible. You know, that, that whole process was hard and I don't want to have, to I don't want to deal with it anymore. So now I'm a survivor. I'm done. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal let with it anymore. Grow my life. Let me just let live me, my yeah, best life. Yeah. Now let me live. Yeah, yeah. Now let me live, live my best life. Um, Until which it then, all repeats again, 10 years later. Repeats. Yeah. Yeah. Then, <laughs> then it happens to your children and then you have to go through the whole process again. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that we, you know, really need to think about the stages of that. And that as I, any listeners to this right now that are done the work to become survivors, I am going to challenge you to become more than a survivor, become an activist. Don't just listen to these podcasts, but become a voice for the children that can't talk about it. We need to have a children's rights movement where children have human, equal human rights. Mm. Uh, and they don't. They just don't. Um, we, I mean, yes, we need to 
keep safety of our children when then well this is actually adding safety to our children but you know children if you you know they can't especially at a young age they can't survive on their own we need to keep them safe Cultural but by safety. keeping by keeping them safe we need to give them rights to say no and and not obey and um listen to the commands of adults because that allows them to be victimized um, because if you can't say no to an adult, an adult says, whatever, let me do this to you or do this to me. As a child, you're yeah. not allowed to say no to that. So then you do it. And then, yeah, it's, yeah. We there need are to- so many, yeah, there's so many webs of this particular conversation, which I think we'll be getting more into um, a, a terminology I recently heard on this particular topic around children's rights um, is adult supremacy. Yeah. And I just you know, from being uh, an early youth that was recognizing that I didn't have many rights to be able to navigate without my parents. When you come from um, broken environments where your adult caretakers are not um, having your best interests and you really start to look at some of the issues that that you just brought up, it's fascinating. I also just want, I got to pause. Alan, this, this mic drop for me. I mean, I'm just in awe with this whole thing you just brought up on victim, survivor, activist, thriver, right? It, it's like, I don't know what it's doing in my brain, but it's like some sort of a computer code, like, <laughs> because I'd never thought about that before. Like, wow, victim, survivor. So I, I didn't recognize the differentiation of that in a sense. And only in the last couple of years have I really been getting more in, in studied and learned on of what it really means to be a survivor of complex trauma, um, early childhood adverse response, and, and what it means in our brains, like what happens in our childhood brain, and then what that impacts us long term. So the thing that's blowing my mind, the most of that is so many people, quote, identify, don't identify as the victim, don't identify as survivor either. They just bury it and then go yeah. live their best life. Yeah. So they are never actually addressing any of it. And for me, the last thing I would ever want to have done is identify as a victim. Yeah. So I identified as an achiever, yeah. but it didn't discount all my historical trauma. And well, so, and what, yeah. What happens when you do that is those traumas are still there. You still get the triggers, the PTSD, the the symptoms from them and they never go away you, you might be thriving you might be like not thriving but you might be like look living. like living you know you look like you're living your best life and then something happens and you're triggered and you're you know or, destroyed or- on the inside and you, and you don't know how to cope with it because you, you need to keep this face up that you're this super successful person and then then the, the cycle starts and then you know then that's where like real drug problems start with like hard drugs or severe just eating orders and um you know all the you know alcoholism because we're trying to bury it with all these different coping me- mechanisms yes. but it's always you could bury it you know as deep as you possibly can and it's gonna still get back to the top you can't you know until you've fixed it until you it's go dig in the away. dirt, you got to yeah. dig in the dirt of that history, because that history. once you dig in the dirt of that history, you yeah. actually come out of it metabolizing, having more space yeah. because you're not so compacted. And, and even the more you try to ignore it, the when it does come out, it's even worse. Volcanic. You know? 
Volcanic. Yeah, exactly. Perfect example. It's like and, a volcano. And it's erupted. decontextualized. So because you don't have the memory and yeah. like literally my sense of identity was my, my childhood was great. Yeah. I had no idea that, that what I was holding. And so we form a whole new psychology towards ourselves as a mechanism of survival, which is I why I like- love what you're talking about. When you say, don't just stay in survivor, because when we're in survival mode, which I've lived most my life in survival mode. Yeah. You don't even know that the triggers you have aren't your personal things. You don't know that that's your compacted trauma. You just think that's your personality or the way that you are. I think a, a real good way of, of, of being able to visualize it in your head is um, like a domestic um, violence situation or just a fight, like a, a violent situation in general. It's like that volcano erupting. They have this trauma in their life. And they try to bury it, bury it, and then it explodes. And then it explode. It can explode in violent ways. That's one of the mm. ways. I mean, not saying that's the only way. That's just one of a hundred, you know, thousand different ways it can be exploded. It's one that we see a lot. Um, so these people exploding in these, you know, which you might like, you know, I, I've seen people explode in a situation where you don't even realize why they're exploding. But it's, you know, it's it's that past trauma that's exploding. It's not even that current situation right there. It's that you know, incident from when they were five, that when they're 30 is exploding and they don't know how to deal with it. And then they react in violent ways or however, you know, they have, you know, usually, or it's not so obvious ones. Like it's, it's actually repeating patterns in relationship. It's never getting the fulfillment we want, never getting the sex or the depression, um, depression, anxiety is a big one. I haven't had depression for 15 years. I haven't had a, like a, not more than 10 seconds of depression. You yeah. know, I'll feel depressed for maybe 10 seconds. And I'll be like, oh, no, that's not, that. you know, there's, you know, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I also want to just point out that, like, I feel like I've been, because I couldn't identify as a victim, I've been surviving my whole life, not recognizing it as survival, thinking that I'm, you know, creating something. My activist never showed up until I took a stop on that survival mode and said, I need to learn what's really going on inside. And so the more I actually stopped and started paying attention to real complex trauma therapists and and reading books on complex trauma, it allowed me to notice my body differently. And And I appreciate so much of what you're saying because you're helping to identify things we might do that we don't even recognize in ourselves. And you you see it all over society right now that happening where um, with civil rights, um, gender rights, where you know, everyone was just surviving for a long time. And now they're like, I, I think Trump kind of like was one of the catalysts for this. Mm. It's like, holy shit, we could lose this. Mm. And everyone became activists again, mm. which now we've, you know, people, a lot of people talk about like, you know, all the terrible things that have happened with, I mean, I guess, well, I don't know if you're a Trump supporter, if that's who you are, I guess, but, uh, you know, or that, that QAnon type stuff. But, you know, that type of stuff is, really like i don't know i feel like it's really a a small section of our society that is trying to hold on to that past because like their trauma and it's making the survivors become thrivers and activists to fight that small section but we see it and we're like holy shit i don't want to go back to being a victim anymore so we're like standing up and so it seems much worse than it is. I mean, it is, no, it seems as bad as it is. Um, 
but a lot of people are, I just wanted to bring that up because a lot of people say, oh, things are getting worse. Things are, it's like, no, the worst things are just being exposed more. You know, they were there before. They were, yeah. I feel like there's so many more of us with agency, with awareness, with knowledge. There's far more teaching going on and things being revealed. Truth telling people like you setting boundaries for what's tolerable and not tolerable in your in your orbit. And, you know, when we've been violated so much, we have a crash course in learning what's acceptable or not, right? And we can keep letting the old patterns play us, or we can choose new ones and go through the hard work of of crafting a new self. I agree 100%. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot we need to do. Um, I feel like we touched on a lot of the topics. I, I, I was looking over my list here just yeah, now. Did you, did you knock and it out? The other I, I knocked it out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, out I love it. You brought so much richness here, like on so many levels, like a, as a, a big white male, right. But starting yeah. as a young child and like growing yeah. into this, but just because your body grows, doesn't mean your identity grows. Doesn't no. mean and your awareness grows. I, I, I think like one thing I want to end it on for okay. myself, you know, one point that I, I brought up, but cause you just brought it up again too, which is great. Um, that I had been thinking that I needed to, touch on more is you know we talk about especially male white privilege and it's a real thing it's a hundred percent a real thing and yeah i mean i think some people that have that are afraid of losing it by giving other people that equal privilege i think those people don't understand that by giving everyone that privilege that they have We'll make the world a better place. We'll make their life a better life. Um, it's not something that we need to hold as, I mean, I purposely dress and act and, and, and remove myself from that white privilege culture so that, I mean, I still have it, but I, I don't abuse it. And instead I think of it as like, okay, this is what everyone, especially like when, you know, I think of like how women are treated in our society. Um, that's just like, and children are treated in our society. Those are, those are just like, for me, those are, and, and, and race too, you know, um, all, all, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, yeah, it, yeah. (laughs) I just, what I hear, what I hear you saying or trying to say is that the more work you've done to be able to acknowledge and see these things in your life, the more you're able to actively active, be an activist when these things are happening around you. So you're aware of this identity as a male white person, and you can actively engage in a way that breaks that stereotype and be different than that. Exactly. And it's brilliant. I want to say that I commend you because it means a, you're learning and you're always leaning into, um, becoming better to recognizing your own biases. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, we just have a lot of work to do. <laughs> uh, it's a plan. And, yeah. Um, it's exhausting thinking about everything I just talked about. And uh, <laughs> you brought a lot yeah. to us. I have to say, yeah. Yeah. It's a and I, I keep a lot is. back too. And you know, that's, you know, there's still, you know, like every one of those topics I could have went on and on and on about, um, and that's what's just, I was trying to figure out a way in my mind to, to wrap it up, you know, the, the whole thing. But I guess it's just that, I guess, I think the, the main point um, is the, you know, you've done the hard, if you've done the hard work to become a survivor, don't stop there. 
you know, everything we talked about today can be helped by, you know, I guess going, going back to the children's rights movement, you know, every, the LGBT community movements, the women's movement, the civil rights movement were done by people that were affected by those problems in our society. Children don't have that ability. Sexual abuse survivors, child abuse survivors, it's our responsibility once we've healed ourselves to create that. Um, Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately it's almost all of us, you know, (laughs) that's the thing. It's like child sexual abuse does not discriminate on race, culture, um, wealth. It happens evenly across the board. And if you have not had any of those things happen to you, you're one of the lucky few, you know, it's, yeah. And by far, many of us can think we didn't have it happen to us and we don't remember because yeah. it's mo- mo- much of that stuff is so compacted early yeah. on. Really, we don't even, we justify like, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had many partners and friends say, oh, well, someone tried to rape me, but they never succeeded. So I was not abused. It's like, no, you're still violated. You're still, still sexually abused. You're still sexually abused. And, yeah. and it's so much to do with the language. And I just, I appreciate so much of the language that you brought today because the language we use, even kind of starting to think about, huh, am I using victim? Am I am I identifying as a survivor? Am I am I sexual abuse? Is there what other terminology? Because a part of changing culture is changing the language we use. And if we're going to create culture that protects children, as opposed to we have a, a culture that very much fetishizes and culturally accepts trafficking and sexualizing children and we've all watched it in plain sight we've grown up around it it continues to happen and as survivors i can't agree more it's a great point to end on because there's not a lot of solutions we're talking about the way we bring solutions is by talking about it it's by bringing it out loud it's lighting the light in the dark talking about the complexity of going through (laughs) shit like what you just heard Alan talk about that doesn't make any sense no child should go through these things but I'll promise you your neighbor across the street or next to you are going through it right now yeah yeah your relatives your friends in your own family doesn't matter how wealthy you are doesn't matter how poor you are these things are happening on all social scales I can't agree more and thank you for that point yep well, this has been well, an active conversation. Thank you so much. Um, thanks so everyone many- for listening to to my stories and my experiences. And, and you know, I, a lot of the stuff I said is very hard for me to say um, today. And um, it's a new journey of talking about those things for me. And thanks for being part of listening to that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, tell us, tell the listeners how they can uh, stay in touch with you. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Childhood Fractures, my not-for-profit. We have a webpage. Um the Instagram for that is CFHQ, Childhood Fractured Headquarters, um, Alan Vanderveer, social media, um, Instagram. Um, if you want to learn about my art, um, I got so much going on. Um, I will forward you more information so you put it on the, in the notes. Yeah, put it in the show notes. So take yeah. a look at all the links and stay connected. Uh, fo- fo- uh, follow Alan and Childhood Fractured and uh, see all the upcoming and new growth that's coming in for them in 2023. Thank you for your vulnerability today and uh, yeah. giving us a lens into your experience. Tell us about why you chose this song. Oh, just, it makes me feel good. Um, it's a, uh, it's, I mean, I love the lyrics to it too. And, and the, the, if you watch the music video, it's so good. Um, it just makes me feel tingly and good inside. It's like one of those, I don't know, the, the I like the groove to the song. It makes me 
just that's kind of like how I feel about life and just oh it's just yeah it's uh yeah it's just how it makes me feel yeah. I love it. And <laughs> on that note, I really appreciate how you brought the conversation of uh, sex positive and consent and the need for us to reclaim our own pleasure. And so when you talk about that, choosing things that feel good, putting ourselves yeah. in the center of our own universe, letting yeah. ourselves have the delight that we never got to receive when we were young yeah. to yeah. be delighted in. Yeah. These are choices you're yeah. making. And this song yeah. represents that. So thank you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I always like uh, our guests to choose a song that represents their episode or that they just want to share. So here we go. This is called Time, You and I by Kruangan Bin. I don't think I said that right, but there you go, y'all. purposes we don't listen to the whole song but we do have an uncomfortable conversations on predators in business community and culture playlist so be sure to listen to the playlist on spotify and the the link is in the show notes as well Um, folks as always this stuff is hard to go through and it's also hard to listen to and so make sure to get up and move your body after this do something move the energy um and shake it out and kind of tune into what your system wants to do, whether it's a walk or whether it's a scream and uh, give yourself whatever pleasure is available to you. Thanks for listening and be sure to rate review and subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. Your listening support is always appreciated. Thank you for showing up, Alan. I appreciate your time. Thank you. This has been another episode of uncomfortable conversations on predators in business, community, and culture. If you need support beyond this listening space, you can connect with me at gurunishan.com. I'm a writer, speaker, and trauma healing activist offering free and paid resources, online courses, and consulting in personal and professional reinvention. If you'd like to be a guest and share your story, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com or check the show notes for details. Please also like, subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with someone that you love. Please remember your listening and sharing support is greatly appreciated. The information presented in this podcast are for general educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed are solely the views of the individuals involved. By listening, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Nothing in this podcast is intended to replace the services of a trained therapist, doctor, or health professional, or otherwise to substitute for professional mental health, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Guru Nishan LLC and affiliate organizations shall under no circumstances be liable to any listener of the podcast or viewer for any action or inaction on your part as a result of the content you consume on this podcast or for any adverse reaction, including any emotional distress you experience as a result of consuming this podcast. 